Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past. The Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where you put our postcards on the table and my guests share the picture postcards that they've received or bought, the cards they couldn't bear to part with. And together we try to learn the stories that make those images and messages so powerful. I'm Tom Jackson and today I'm delighted to say my guests are both writers, Marina Benjamin and Emma Mitchell. Uh, Marina and Emma, hello and welcome. Hi Tom. Hello. Good to be here. Now, uh, Marina Benjamin is a writer whose books appear to cover very wide-ranging and diverse subject matter, but in many ways they're often tied together with a, a, a personal and quite intense approach. Uh, Living at the End of the World investigated end-time cults. Rocket Dreams was an elegy to the space age. Last Days in Babylon told the story of her Baghdad-born grandmother. The Middle Pause was a personal account of middle age. And her latest book, the beautifully produced Insomnia, is a profound hallucinatory analysis of and meditation on and journey into and through sleeplessness. Marina comes to us today with a slightly reluctant N1 London postmark. Marina, do you still send postcards? I'm not a great postcard sender. And when I do, I, it's really uh, in, a, in a flurry of passion. I can't sort of not send the postcard. Ooh, but it tell me more about that. Well, I mean, I, sorry, I mean, it's it's enthusiasm, flurry of enthusiasm, <laughs> I should say, not passion. I'm starting to um, lead you to think uh, in romantic terms, but I don't I don't mean it that way. I just mean I'm in a, a fever when I send a postcard because it is an unusual and extraordinary thing for me to do rather than the run-of-the-mill thing. So you're sending them... Well, can you give an example of when you've... Uh, yes. The, the passion has taken you to send those cards? Yes, I might, I think I recognise it. Yes, I might infuse about uh, somebody. I'm uh, an appreciation of somebody who's done something really lovely and I want to show my appreciation. Or it's usually an enthusing of one sort or another. I might enthuse about someone's book that I like and send them one of mine um, because I don't think we do that sort of thing enough. So kind of I look... I look at it as a kind of heart-to-heart kind of communication. And the postcard works for that. Yeah. Very good. Well, Emma Mitchell is an ex-biologist, a naturalist, a workshop teacher, uh, a maker, as they say now, and an illustrator. And she's gained a huge following on social media uh, for her nature diaries and craft and nature projects. Her first book, Making Winter, explored the part that creative projects can play in helping us through the dark months. Um, 
And her latest book, The Wild Remedy, uh, is a beautifully produced diary of the curative effect of spending time in green places. Um, and despite all that, Emma doesn't actually live in the woods or up a tree. Um, <laughs> but she comes to us today with an L25 Liverpool postmark, overstamped, I think, with CB25 That's right, yeah. in the fens. Mm. Emma, when did you last send a postcard? I think it was about two years ago. I've written a blog for 10 years, and in 2015, I bought myself a pen, a fountain pen. Right. And I was inspired to do so by a Twitter pal of mine called Benjamin Ranyard, who sells cut flower seeds, and he writes beautiful letters with each of his kind of deliveries of these little packets of seeds. And I thought, oh, that, that is lovely. And I, used to, I remember really enjoying writing with my pen. So on my blog, I started a project, um, the Handwritten Letter Project. And it was encouraging people to write to one another by hand with postcards and letters. And I used this modern website that was sort of pairing people up for, I don't know, exchanging gifts. And I expected maybe a hundred, couple of hundred people to sign up. And I, I then paired them off in various batches. And it went a bit bonkers, and there were over a thousand wow. before I knew it, and it ended up on. And you were the radio. matchmaker, matching these various pen pals. I did. I think that people were yearning to pick up a pen again and exchange letters, and so I wrote postcards to a couple of strangers, and uh, lots of those pairs of people are still writing to each other. Amazing. So the seeds led to the label, which led to the handwriting, which led to the pen, yeah. which led to this flurry of writing. Yes, but I have to confess that that project got so big that I had to kept sending the notifications for it into a, a dark place in my inbox because right. it was giving me a headache. Yeah, that's the danger, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Um, before we discover the cards that Emma and Marina have brought along, um, I'll give you a quick one of mine. And this is, of course, a, a postcard from the past card, like I do on Twitter and in the book. It's an old card from which I've selected just a small part of the message. So the first card I've got here is a, a multi-view of Scarborough, a series of uh, different parts of Scarborough there. A tram. Um, yes, including a tram. And Is the sea really that blue? The sea is always <laughs> that blue in Scarborough, yes. Do you not, of course it is. Do you not know? Um, <laughs> And this card was uh, sent in, 90, it's quite recent, 1988. Well, it seems recent to me, 1988. It's not um, sort of from the golden age. Um, uh, the message that I found interesting is very, very brief. And it was, I'm having a cup of tea in Debenhams. <laughs> uh, I just thought, I know, I know all I need to know now. That's, that's all I need to know about their trip to Scarborough. Um, that person was inspired, as you were, perhaps by this. Cuppa. But I have a feeling if the day had been as glorious as it is on those pictures, they would not have been having a cup of tea in Debenhams. No. So I think that was the default setting when it rained. Anyway, to let you know at home, images of all the cards we discussed today are on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, and you can investigate for yourself. Now, uh, Emma Marina, you've come to the studio kindly with uh, a large number of cards, and we're going to sort of find our way through them. Emma, let's start with you. Know, I think you've actually got a well, I thought was a box with a cake in it. But <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Let's start there. Right. Yes, it does look like a cake box. It's got about, God, about 200 postcards in it that I collected from the age of about 16. And at that time, I was studying science, particularly molecular cell biology, very intensely. 
but there's a part of my brain that always wants to, you know, be immersed in art and know. I wanted to know more about it. I had been steered away rather subtly by school towards a scientific end point. But frankly, I longed to draw things and know about the artists. So the way that I went about it was um, I was a student from about 1990 and I'd just go around spending 30 or 40p on postcards. And so what I've got here is me trying to, inv- trying to learn about art history and trying to learn about modern art too by collecting postcards. So you use them as a, as a kind of series of flashcards, a sort of a way, a way into the history of art and the story of art, card I did. by card. Yes, I did. So I went to as many exhibitions as I could in between, you know, dissecting scorpions and learning about how DNA works. And so there was the two parts of my brain were... The artistic side of it was semi-satisfied with my collection. So wherever I would live, and it was usually slightly manky, kind of um, rented accommodation... In where, my, where, where was this? In Cambridge. In Cambridge. I would put up my collection postcards on the wall, and there's some very ancient blue tack on the back of some of these. That timed, <laughs> crystallised blue tack. <laughs> yeah, time team could investigate it. And, so, and I'd put up the postcards... In a collection, so that they the, the colour would shift, oh, and okay. it was inspired by one of the postcards I brought here. Really. Ah, interesting. So you were already playing with the colours yourself. I was. I was sort of making the postcards themselves, even though they were individual painting. You know, postcards of paintings from anywhere from the Renaissance to the present day. I was then I was arranging them so that they had a connection to one another with colour. Interesting. Now, from this sort of uh, this huge shoebox of cards, you've brought a little selection here mm. that has some kind of uh, uh, formative influence on the work that you're doing now, I think. Is that right? That's right. So I have an Instagram account where I am sharing the kinds of things I find when I'm out on my walk. Things that fell off trees, things that fell off birds, (laughs) primarily. You make it sound lovely. It is lovely. It is lovely. It's very, very soothing. And in fact, I've written about that at length in my book because it's, it's a very relaxing and engrossing thing to do. And I didn't realise quite why I was so passionate about collecting until I had to think about my my childhood. Um, We were taken around an awful lot of National Trust properties and they were very grand rooms. I thought you were about to say that you you were reflecting on some terrible trauma. No. (laughs) Well, it was uh, was just every weekend. I mean, it was was very, very, you know, very worthy. And, but mostly very grand rooms and lots of velvet and damask. And I, was, I wasn't interested in that. What I loved were the kitchens with all the beautiful copper pans. And my favourite part of any stately home was the cabinet of curiosities. Right. So the fossils or the weird bone that some posh guy had gone on, on, on the tour, you know, in the 19th century. And he'd come back with these relics or these interesting things. And some of them had labels. And I would just gaze at these cabinets and long to make my own collections and I started to do that when I was about seven and so these postcards here are I think really a reflection of that passion that I have then and now for collections so things that have a link to one another individual units that are kind of repeated, but there's something different about each one. So well, That's the essence of a collection, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, absolutely. But together, they make something more than the sum of their parts. There's something synergistic about bringing them together. And there's something that I think 
happens in our brains when we bring collections together. So I do wonder whether our ancient ancestors... Well, they do. They, oh, you they, think, they you hoarded think, things. You I think, think the gathering is the, the forebear of the collection? Well, I think foraging had something to do with it. I think there's, there's pathways there that we release dopamine when we, when we find blackberries. And um, there's something about that going on here. So what, what, what are we seeing here in terms of the layouts and the, right. the looks of these collections? Quite a range of dates here. So this is a postcard that I got from the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And it's a sampler, an English sampler. And it's pre-1640. Now, a lot of samplers that you might see, perhaps more Victorian, you'll have letters and you'll have some kind of motto. Yes. And little pictures of houses. But this is this enchanted me because it was simply practising various different stitches. Mm. And in places they form something recognisable. So there's some beautiful little strawberries here. But other than that, there's there's just a gorgeous collection of shapes and they, they have been practised in separate little spots around this piece of linen. And together it forms an exquisite collection of needlework. And, yeah, I just, I love looking at it and I always see something new. And so down there there's sort of little motifs that remind me of, well... It remind me of flowers of some some form or another, for, or maybe clover. So yeah, that was something gorgeous that I picked up. And around, maybe a little bit later on in the nineties, I then went to do a PhD in London, and it was the time of Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin. And I remember going to an exhibition at the Serpentine. Were they the Young Brits? That. Oh, yes, that a freeze sure. exhibition. It was freeze. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. And I also went to something called a fluvia, which was some of the same artists. Uh, it wasn't Serpentine, sorry. It was another exhibition space. But this is a picture of one of Damien Hurst's pieces from 1991. And it's called Forms Without Life. And it's shelves covered in, sh- in shells, a beautiful collection of shells. And... I didn't even remember I had this postcard. What sort of size is it, it the, the, with the shelves? Because it's very deceptive, the postcard. It they could is, be huge they, or they could or be they tiny. they could be minuscule, couldn't they? I think it was quite big. It was sizeable. So I would say a couple of metres wide by, you know, so one and a half metres. shelves are quite large. Yes, these, some, of these, some of these shelves are quite sizeable. And again, it's a collection. So it, it made me think of the things that I'd seen when I was a little girl in National Trust Properties. It was... A collection from nature. And to some extent, I think with Damien Hurst, he, he was playing with ideas of display. He was, wasn't, wasn't he? Yeah. These weren't pieces he'd found on the beach. No. He was, they'd been put together totally with the display in mind. Absolutely. And he had a very famous piece, didn't he, called Pharmacy, and it was just all the boxes of the, the various drugs. And so there's something about that that ingrained itself. Um, in you my, said you, you were at Cambridge. Did you love a Jim Eads house? Oh, um, Kettle's Yard. Yes. I have <laughs> about eight different postcards mm-hmm. in this collection of... They are monochromatic and they're just pictures of the shadows mm-hmm. in that house. Oh, yes. do, you, do you know it? I know it, but it was your collections that was sort of the perfectly placed pebble or... Um, group of pebbles and he was you know oh, yeah. was either looking for pattern or family arrangements between natural objects that seems to speak very much to the kind of thing that you're interested in definitely and in fact that's reminded me 
how many times I used to visit when I was a student. And it's called the Louvre of the Pebble. Oh. <laughs> There's a little... I like that. Sculpt, sculpt. Somebody's actually sculpted that using stone, so they've actually um, chiselled it out of a beautiful piece of slate. So, yes, absolutely. Kettle's Yard was ingraining that kind of urge to collect in my memory. So I don't know where I got this one from. This, um, is, this is a more traditional... Pin, butterflies are pins through them card, is it? It is. I, know, I think that might be a painting rather than a, ah. an actual collection. But this is from 1999, coming towards the end of my collecting phase. And these are quite exotic butterflies, but they are as, as they're displayed as though they are a Victorian naturalist's collection and kind of impaled with pins, which is a bit gruesome. But the sight of them together, um, all of the different coloured wings and the beautiful patterns is what seems to ping things off in my brain. And then consciously or unconsciously, all your time staring at these arrangements of uh, natural objects in, in, in space, mm. that then has inspired the way you've laid things out on your work in Instagram and in your book and so on. That's right. So I find the process of laying them out with a gentle gradation or ombre of colour very soothing and I think it's... I'd love to have it tested by some um, neuroscientists, but I think it changes my neurotransmitters. There's something going on. Something very relaxing and I'm not keen on the word mindful, but it's, it's, yeah, it's the similar kind of feeling to when I'm crocheting or when I'm drawing. It's very similar. And when I make those images, I often put the labels for the different species of plants I've found or, you know, the plants from which the berries have come. And I then... Will make take the loveliest photo I can of of it from above, and it will have a similarity to these images. So lots of different berries that I gathered perhaps in October, and they will have a connection in in the same shapes, but their colours will shift. And then I put it on social media, and people will tweet me or let me know on on my Instagram that it makes them feel relaxed when Very they good. when they see it. So it's it's helping others. To chill out as well. That's amazing, and and it's it's, it's interesting the, the the part that postcards have played in kind of developing your aesthetic there. It's really interesting. Yeah, so that was my thrifty way to learn about about art history. It seems to have worked. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing those, Marina. You've got a few cards as well. What's your first delivery for us? Well, my first delivery are some sort of sepia tinted black and white images of Baghdad. And some of them are monumental and others are sort of pedestrian. So These are very evocative, aren't they? There's something about that sepia. They are very mm. evocative. And I the funny thing is where I found them together in an envelope and I found that my brain was kind of tripping through all kinds of stories about how I came to have them because I couldn't actually remember them but any of my recollections are plausible so either I was given them there in Baghdad yes and I think that I might have been given them by the man who was my minder when I was there right and I feel like I lucked out with with this driver his name is Mahmoud Shaka he was a teacher for a long time and then when hordes of international Western media people were arriving. I went in 2004, but he's kept this line of work up. He began as um, an English-speaking native to offer guided tours and, you know, help find addresses, which were very hard to find in Baghdad. 
and I kind of lucked into having him be my my driver for the weeks that I was there researching my book. And um, I didn't want to tell him that I was Jewish because it just felt too delicate a thing and too exposing at this time when the country was in turmoil and I didn't know where people stood. But I, I'm yes. sure I'm sure he guessed because we were going to visit places that had specific interests for Jewish people. Anyway, I think he he and I bonded over a shared appreciation of Baghdad's history and he gave me these. So I can talk you through some of the images. That There's would be great. The magnificent tomb of Zubaydah, which is also a mosque, and Zubaydah was the wife of um, Harun al-Rashid, so the founder of the city of Baghdad. And it dates from around the 13th century and looks like looks a little bit like a, a stone pine cone sitting on top of um, a box. Very beautiful, very unusual shape. That's not a ziggurat, is it? Um, or is it a, a no, kind of ziggurat? Not, I wouldn't, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a ziggurat because that would be, I would imagine that would be wider at the base and, and po- pointier, on, pointier on it's top. It's an amazing thing, though. But it's made of these individual stones which actually are set in such a way that gaps, there are little gaps between them so that actually when you go into the mosque, sunlight casts uh-huh. a beautiful glow on the walls and on the floor. And I was going to ask you what it's yeah. like inside, inside that structure. Yes. Can you climb up or is it just... Does it just no, it, no, it just throws light, so it's kind of hollow. Would that also provide a little bit of air conditioning as well? Yes, exactly. And because of the heat inside, yes, absolutely. But it was Brilliant. sort of dark and dank inside. And then uh, and nothing on the walls and no information for tourists and very, very basic place to be for a national monument. So you need you needed your driver to get you, you know it wasn't it um, wasn't on the tourist trail. Well, it's actually in the cemetery. It's in the old cemetery in Baghdad. So it's not a hidden away thing. It's quite well known. It's quite exposed actually, and it's amazing that it survived the bombs. But quite an amazing kind of contemplative spot to be in. So in the middle of a place that was filled with danger and death and strife, and it was a real oasis of peace. Quite quite amazing, really. There's some Arabic writing on the postcard that I can't read, I'm afraid. I wish I could. Well, when we when we put that up on the website, perhaps someone will translate yes. it for oh, us. Oh, that would be so wonderful, actually. We'll see if we can make that happen. I, I did go. I took an intensive course. I have three-year-old Arabic, but I couldn't read it. And I took an intensive course before going because I didn't want to be unable to read signs. Mm. I thought that in a war-torn country, the most important thing to be able to do was read signs. And did um, that get you through at the time? It did at the time. And then, of course, with lack of use, it wears away. But, I mean, there were lots of signs. There was lots of sort of God is great emblazoned on the walls. But there were also things like, you know, down with the Jews, which I thought was very interesting because at the time I went to Baghdad, there were only 22 Jews left. And now there are none. (laughs) So, yes, you know, it was clearly the demon who, you know, who they've never met. Yeah, well, they're the best demons, aren't they? (laughs) Best demons, exactly. So other postcards, there's one very lovely postcard, I think, of King Faisal who was the first terrific shot. king of Baghdad. And yes, he actually, I think he looks a little um, nervous in that picture. There's something mm. about the set of his eyes there. Mm. Yes, he doesn't look, he seems to have great charisma, but he doesn't look very comfortable. He doesn't look very comfortable. And I think, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting madly here, but I think that might be because he felt deeply uncomfortable about accepting the British invitation to come and be king of mm. this land which wasn't a country at the time but a sort of occupied territory with no firm borders and he was uh, a desert the son of a desert sheikh from the Jeddah area 
So he was what, what, technically... So which year was this? Which sort of um, era? Is it similar? Era is it would be... with this one? I think all the postcards, they look to me to have a, bit, have a similar maker. In fact, there's a little inscription at the bottom that says J.S. Morey, who might have been the photographer. Ah, look, it's the same yes. one as on the... Yes. Mausoleum Probably the publisher. There. Yeah, um, but, but the, the pictures, the pictures be... might be a bit older than the cards, if you see what I mean. I think, I think they are because um, some of the pictures are of things that have not done well. Obviously, Faisal's no longer around, but this picture I'm imagining was taken in the 1920s. Mm. But he's got this military uniform on, sort of. It looks actually like British military uniform. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and then he's got a tie, a very neatly tied tie and shirt underneath, which is extremely bizarre and a cap that's got a little bit of the Bedouin uh, headdress in it still. Yes. So it's a real mishmash there. Yes, um, it's, it's actually a, a, a helmet, isn't it? It looks like it, you could drop a stone on you and you'd be all right. But he's got the, the braid that you'd have in the he, desert. He does. And, and the British weren't wearing things like that when they were They were wearing solar topis. So it's a unique thing. And maybe part of it had to do with his status as king. But yes, I mean, it's a very strange picture I think and then there's this other picture dating from the same era of the statue that was erected to celebrate General Maud's entry into the city of Iraq and that was in 1917 so liberating it from the Turks and there was a little honeymoon period for about two years when everyone in Baghdad seemed very very happy to be rid of the Turks no matter what their stripe was and then it was kind of unclear what the British were doing there and so people started to get a bit antsy. Yes. Of, I well, thought we were promised self-rule, they started saying. Liberating the British, armies are um, <laughs> often welcome for a while, yes. aren't they? Well, the British said, you're going to get self-rule, we respect the Arab right to rule. But on the sly, they'd signed the Sykes-Picot Agreement, of course, which was an agreement between England and France to carve up the former Ottoman territories between them. And Britain was going to take Mesopotamia and France, Syria. Yes. And this was all happening about 100 years ago, wasn't it? Yes, almost exactly 100 years ago, actually. Yeah. And I have photographs of the family album of my family, in fact, on the roof terrace in Baghdad with my grandmother, a kind of teenager, maybe no more than 16, with British soldiers having tea on their roof. Goodness me. Oh, um, wow. You know, and the Jews of Baghdad were the kind of cosmopolitan, forward-looking, integrationist, population of Baghdad, they numbered about 130,000 people at the time. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of really embraced the British and, and all things British. I, you know, I'm told, you know, that my great-grandmother started putting milk in the tea and <laughs> buying lion's tea cakes really? when, the, when the British oh. arrived so that she could do the Britisher thing. What an image. Lion's tea yeah. cakes. Yes. They were available. On the roof in Baghdad. Well, no, all these supply stores started springing up everywhere to cater to the British soldiers. Oh, of course. Yes. Chewing gum. That was another Amazing. thing. Was, uh, Baghdad went wild for chewing gum. That's strange. This is, this is in the 20s? In the 20s, Amazing. yeah. And then I have um, a picture of the Ministry of Defence. Why anybody would take a picture of the Ministry of Defence? It is a rather beautiful gate that I think leads to the Ministry of Defence. But... Um, it well, was, I've, I've spent some time recently talking to people who are experts in um, cards of the Raj, and there was an obsession with taking pictures of colonial buildings. If it was an official building and it stayed still, there would be a postcard of it. It seems to. So I, think, I wonder if that's sort of fitting the same category 
Um, it's a sort of a, a yes. mark of uh, some kind of imperial power in a way. Look, yeah, I mean, there's very, very little aesthetic interest in it. The most curious mm. thing about it actually is that funny bubble car, which well, seems to something. date it from the fifties, I think. Yeah, Would it does. Look, it does look later than I thought it was actually that one. Very beautiful car, actually. I know really? it looks strangely futuristic. It's the last thing you'd imagine seeing in Baghdad. Well, um, listeners can look at that car and, and identify it for us. Oh yes, I yeah. would. No, terrific. It's got very lovely curves. It has sweeping, it? sweeping lines. It could be thirties, couldn't it? It might be could more, be 30s. more deco, isn't it? And um, well, the one thing I do know about this ministry is that it was off grounds for most uh, civilians during right. Saddam Hussein's reign. So it would have been an area, part of Baghdad, that he had kind of cordoned off for himself. Right. So a, a building of power. Through history. Yes, exactly. So maybe taking a snap of it was an act of defiance in and of itself. <laughs> My final postcard from Baghdad is definitely older. I mean, I would date that to the photograph, at least, to the very early 20th century. I'm judging by the costumes that are worn there. And it's women by the tigress selling milk. And they have these baskets on their head. How those kept the liquid in, I don't know. But my mother's described to me as a child how these women would then come to the house and um, and they'd sell yogurt. So the milk, I guess, would curdle. Um, time passes. Yes, time passes. It becomes yogurt. And these would be cut with a kind of um, very fine wire. The my set goodness. yogurt would be cut. Ah, so it's quite thick. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And handed over to them. So where were the, where were the cattle? That's a very good question. I mean, not in the picture, but somewhere. No, they're not must in the been... picture, are they? And there must be, might must have been, been goat. Oh, it's, well, that's possible, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it, there's a little type, typo on there as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, selink. Selink milk. Selink milk. But it's it's clear what the image is. And there's um, there's some writing on that as well, which again, if yeah, well, let's put that up and see if yes, someone that would be great. Uh, any Arabic speakers some can help us with that. And then finally, in this batch with the with the postcards, I obviously this is something I picked up when I was in Iraq, and I'm very glad I did. It's a a five dinar note from the Central Bank of Iraq, which has Saddam Hussein's profile on it, a bust of Saddam Hussein, looking much younger than he did when he was the foe of the West in the 90s. So would this so, have been yes, in circulation when you were there? It was just being phased out. Right. So I, I feel very it's lucky to have It's probably been one. worthless and it might be worth something again now. Yes, yes, it was it was absolutely worthless. And I had actually larger denominations than five, which I'm told were also worthless. So, <laughs> but yes, the historic value is... And the fact that you picked it up there. It just yes, has, a, has a meaning to you, doesn't it? has it? great value. Banknotes are always pretty anyway. Yes. This one's pink, just for your listeners to know. It's sort of shades of pink. And it's a, it's a big thing. It's a large. It's, it's a much bigger than our banknotes. Lots yeah. of different shades of pink, actually. Yeah. And what's going on there? What's is that a building on the other side from Saddam? Yes, I I now I used to know what that was. I think it's something he built as a monument to himself, actually. There were quite <laughs> really? a lot of those. Yes. Oh no, no, I know what that is. It was the monument that was built to celebrate the Iraqi victory of the Iran-Iraq War. Oh, that's what it is. Goodness, yeah. so quite a significant hmm. image there. Well. Thank you very much for these uh, images of Baghdad. You're welcome. Hand imported, very telling and interesting. Actually, I think I think people, if you go on the website and see them, you'll, you will be uh, intrigued by those. Another quick card from me, and in the past postcard style, this is a picture of the Moulin Rouge in Paris. We're somewhat shifting gears here, really, but there it is. It's a symphony in neon from 1969 again, and it's. Uh, a chap called Peter writing to his friend Alan. 
He's not even sure how to spell the word Alan. He, has, he tries a couple of different ways. And <laughs> he's very close. He says, um, oh, in fact, he says, sorry if I've spelt your name wrong. That's how he starts. Uh, my holiday has started very well. I lost my luggage en route. I have to speak French all the time, which is a bit exhausting. And when I speak English to my bird, she can't understand my accent. <laughs> so there you are. It's um, <laughs> my bird. 1969. That's, that's how we all thought in 1969. Surely not you too. <laughs> I was a small child. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. My guests today are writers Marina Benjamin and Emma Mitchell. Emma, what's the second card or batch of cards you have for us today? So this is another card that I must have bought in that era, so between the ages of about 16 and just over 30. Your wild postcard buying days. Yeah, honestly, it's living by the seat of my pants. This is an image of a painting by Paul Clay. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's from 1914. And I don't know where that is, but you think it's somewhere in the Far East. I think it might be North Africa. What does it say? Red and white... um, Couple, red and white couplers, red and white domes. Yes. I mean, I when I bought it, I just bought it because of the, I adored the colours. And it was also quite square, which is interesting because that's the proportions that I now take when I when I make my photographs. He has, it's perfect for Instagram. It is. He knew it? what he was doing. I know. If I put that on Instagram, people would think, yes, it's, that stuff <laughs> fits perfectly. Um, I didn't really think of it as buildings. I just thought of it as these beautiful little squares of colour. And I... Whenever I, you know, lived in these rented digs, I would put up maybe a selection of my postcards, as I, as I mentioned. And this one I always included. It's because I love the gradation of colour and there's quite a lot of berry shades here. And they remind me now, when I look at it, of rose hips and hawthorn berries and also sort of crab apples and a little bit of bluebell action going on. on you've, in really tuned, you've tuned your sense of colour to nature, or you've tuned your sense I of nature to colour. I have. I think there's pathways going you've on got, up I there. I think you've got, it's the equivalent of perfect pitch. 
Do you know what there I mean? Are, you seem to you yeah. seem to recognise the, the colours of nature everywhere. Absolutely, there are plant species that speak. To, even though this is a completely, well, almost completely abstract, and you can only really think of it as buildings when you look at the little curves there of the perhaps the domed roofs and a couple of little windows. And now I think, well, I adored this image, and I used to gaze at it and. I used to think, what's he done with colours there? And I, I didn't, to my shame, go and read a great deal about Paul Clay. I just was enjoying this picture that he'd made. And just before we came on air, I just quickly Googled him. And in fact, he sort of combined surrealism and cubism and post-impressionism. And he explored colour theory very deeply. So now, literally about 10 minutes ago, I really realise now that he was kind of exploring the effects of colour and all kinds of different ways he's using it in this image. And that's sort of what I'm doing with stuff that fell off trees because I'm trying to evoke a response, a positive feeling of well-being, I suppose, in the pictures that I make. And the colours, if you look at my Instagram pictures, there's so many colours in common. So this must have ingrained itself in a little (laughs) cluster of neurons in my frontal lobes. And I'm probably recreating this image, but with... Again and again. berries (laughs) and leaves again and again and again, I think. But it's always different because nature is always different. That's it. And it's seasonally different. So sometimes it'll be flowers from the wood of flowers from my garden and sometimes... They're very autumnal, aren't they? Or aren't almost they? autumnal. The reds, leaf leaves turning red and the yellows maybe, yes, browns. Definitely. And, you know, because I'm, I'm a biologist and I love to learn why things are certain colours, so I, you know, in my book I talk about the unmasking of various um, chemicals in the leaves that are there all year, but when the chlorophyll, the green chlorophyll, is actually withdrawn back into the trees or plants those beautiful shades that we're looking at here in Paul Clay's painting are actually revealed in a cherry tree. So they are, yes, but they're there waiting for when we need that colour in autumn. I find the colours like this really, they help when I have a have a grey day. <laughs> I think it's interesting as well because we, we people bring in cards and they talk about them. And I think it's unusual to have someone come into this room who has such a direct connection in their work to the postcards that they're showing us. I mean, I, you're talking about that image has been a direct inspiration for what you're doing day to day. Yes, and I didn't realise it until I got out this box <laughs> that has been sort of gathering dust since before I had children. And I looked through them and I thought, OK, which ones are pinging off in my brain? And then I, I looked at this one and I thought about it and I thought, wow, this is my Instagram. But it's a picture that was painted in 1914 by a man and Emma Met. Um, Maybe so much of our work is kind of, um, it's written when we're much younger and we just spend our life kind of continuing it as we get older. Yes. Very interesting. Well, thank you for that, Emma. That's uh, really interesting the way that connects with your, your work now. Now, Marina, you're staying with a sort of artistic side, I think, here with these, these next cards. What exactly have we got here? Yeah, well, I'm going to be ad-libbing here because I think, as I told you, I'm not a great keeper of postcards and I'm not a great sender as you you learned at the beginning of the program so when I was looking for postcards to bring on I was like a thief rummaging I just turned drawers upside down cupboards inside out looking for postcards and then and then feeling like I was there was definitely something wrong with me that I didn't keep (laughs) that I didn't keep them and then I thought a bit a little bit about the impulse to throw away and the impulse to keep and how you know, different people make different kinds of connections with 
with other people and with the past and so on. So that it struck me that the two things I found that I had kept were kind of postcard calling cards, if you like, from two women, very different, both artists, one a poet, one a painter, from different parts of the world. And I thought, well, these women in their different ways are inspirational. To me, I find them inspirational. So I'll describe one of them. So this is from the German woman who's in her 70s now. And it's a piece of grey card on which she's cut something out, I think, from a newspaper or a magazine and written some numbers on it. And, and it looks like a little bit of kind of tiny little fragments of statuary that she's cut There's out. There's a little hint of Emma's collected fragments. layout. Yes. yes. Yeah, I'm trying to work out whether she's actually stuck those on individually, but actually that's an image yeah. of those Yeah. It is an image. It's an image of the scraps. And they look vaguely medieval. They look like medieval statues, busts and so on. Or at least, I mean, they look like figures, don't they? I think, oh, yes, I think so. They, yeah. There's head, heads and, and shoulders. Yes, heads and shoulders. And maybe torsos. And I, I'm very curious to know what they are and when they're from. Yes, I am too. I mean, this came in the post, so I wasn't able to ask her directly. And, of course, it's got her address on the back in Hamburg and it's her wanting um, me to stay in touch. But when I did see her, because we'd met in Spain... Um, she showed me some work that she'd done there, and she does paint like this in series. She does kind oh, really? of frantically productive oh. portraiture, and she'll paint the same person over and over in different colours, often in similar poses. So there's a link. <laughs> there probably Rather is. tenuous one. But yeah, there probably is. So is this, a, this is her work? This is her painting? This is not. This is found. She does a lot oh, of work okay. on, and she paints also on newspapers and things like that. So she uses, she paints on found paper a lot of the time. Oh, I like that. Yeah. It's a very creative way of sending a calling card, isn't it? It is. It's very creative. And one of the things that struck me about her, which when I first met her, she told me about her past and her parents had been Nazis and so they'd stayed in Germany during the war. No attempt to flee. Her father had been conscripted and she remembers being with her mother towards the end of the war as her mother tried to escape. And her mother met with a very sorry fate in uh, the woods at the hands of Russian soldiers and she was witness to it. It was a rape. And oh, um, and this uh, kind of forever set her on a path in life to sort of, you know, embrace otherness and to be non-ideological. And she's very exercised over Syria and tries to do work in Germany that supports Syrian refugees through her art and so forth. So I find her a really admirable woman and a, one of these wonderful 20th century survivors, really. And that painful start in life has led her into a life of art. Yes, yeah, and a life of art and a life of connection and empathy with others and, as I say, really trying to do what she can for displaced Syrians in Germany. Nice nice to have a, a positive yeah. outcome from yeah. that, really. And then the other, I, I'm going to try and describe this for your listeners. So these are 12 poems <laughs> by B.L.P. Simmons. <laughs> who is a St. Lucian friend of mine. And these are... So there's a, a bit of black paperwork that she's decorated. Um, sort of marbling, isn't it? Yes, a bit of... It's, um, it's some paint, painting and some strange kind of tapestry on top of it, some tissue or something. Anyway, it looks to me that she's made this out of disposable kind of 
cheap materials, nothing special. They're just the vessel that contains these these cards. Um, this is very typical of this person to find art in, in everyday things, in ephemeral things. And inside, she has got, these are fragments, poems on, on fragmented piece of card that she's collected together for me. And this was a gift. And these are poems she's written? These are poems she's written. Are there connections I? between them? Um, well, a lot of them are inspired by nature. So opening, salt in the eye, remembering. I might read a couple of lines of Please. one. So this is a couple of stanzas from opening. Slowly the bud, not knowing its belly, unfurls. A desire deep within, where pollen lies, its offering stirs. The story of the flower unfolds in pages, its petals seeking to respond to the warm of a newer garden. Slowly, it opens. There's more, but I won't read any more. Very nice. Yes. Yes, so these are lovely. And so... so the whole thing is kind of an art object, isn't it? It is. It it's is. an art object. And it feels like it's a, it, it's a collection, Emma. It's not so dissimilar from... <laughs> except, I suppose, it's collections of words or little poetry fragments. I think it's interesting seeing the, these little postcard-shaped bits of card with poems on them, they do give the poem a kind of um, status and a kind of individuality. Perhaps we should all be writing poems on postcards. They, they seem to work rather well. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, um, I suppose you're right. They, the borders kind of focus you in on the words, don't they, and elevate them to having a kind of, you know, a vernus that you might not get on a scrap of A4. Well, you've, well it's what, what I, when I talk about editing things, is that you get rid of the upholstery. Yeah. You're just left with the thing. Yeah, because um, they're not. They haven't receded into a book or a, an anthology, have they? They're actually you can hold them up individually, and I do like that. Well, it's funny, but this person, I've 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 been invited a couple of times to sort of join her, perhaps in selecting her poetry for a uh, collection. And the thing is, she can never make up her mind on ordering the poems. So in a way, oh. it's fitting that she's fragmented them onto bits of cards because you can read them in any order uh, you want. So you uh, can jumble them and actually yes. perhaps make exactly. connect, make con different connections, and yes. new, new connections between them. Yes. And there's also chance. You can, you, you, as someone said in, in this room, you, you put in your thumb and pull out a plum and you just the first one that comes, well, that's the one to read next. It's a poetic lucky dip. Very good. <laughs> a, a big old brand tub. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's very interesting. So we've got the visual arts, we've got, we've got some poetry, but also wrapped up inside a, a kind of visual object as well. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing these cards today. It's been really interesting. I'm delighted you could share them with me and each other and the listeners. Quick reminder for everyone else at home, these cards that whizzed us towards these stories are all on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk, uh, including one last one from me in the past postcard style, perhaps not so elevated as the last few things we've been looking at, but nonetheless, this is a card, it's a, it's a sort of rather dramatic statue, and it's a picture of the War Memorial in Newcastle-on-Tyne. And the picture was sent in 1983, uh, 21st of November, since you ask. And it was sent to Tunbridge Wells in Kent. And the message, I thought, had a certain amount of emotion behind it. So many sour faces and harassed mums. What has happened to the Christmas spirit? <laughs> <laughs> I just that's not a message I ever expected to see on a postcard. So, so I had to pick it up. Um, now, um, before we let you go back into 
your real lives, um, Rena and Emma. I've got just one more card for you to have a look at. That is this one, which um, it's, oh, be it's become yeah. customary to end the programme with something not dissimilar to this. Look at that. Is that a, re is it a record? Is it? Look oh, yes, so it is. Can you play it? Look at those water skiers. Perhaps you could use your powers of description to describe it for the listener. OK, so there's various... It's quite a large postcard. It's almost sort of double the size of a normal one. And oh, I, I, round the edge are images of Italy. It's an Italian phonoscope. So you've, you obviously hmm. put it in a machine or, or, and you either hear it... Oh, phonoscope, yeah. I think it's... I so think maybe it's you a, hear the sound of... A 45, these. is it, of some kind? Oh. Well, we've, we've done the scope, so... Um, David's been keeping an eye on us from next door. Perhaps if we ask him nicely, he might help us do the phono. Oh, brilliant. But look at these water skis in the middle. They're jaunty, aren't it, they? It's hilarious. And they're all carrying flags of different European uh, countries. Why can't we all be, work together you like see, those water right. skiers? Yeah, you know? Why can't we do that? For goodness this sake. This is some kind of aquatic symbolism. Get for... the Tory party coming down the Thames <laughs> on water skis. Yes, and look at them. They're all very cheerful in their flimsies there. See, that sounds alpine to me rather than Italian. Well, this is exactly what I expected the water skiers to sound like. <laughs> That's what I would sing if I was water skiing across Lake Garda. I'm absolutely kind of blown away by the fact that music has come off a piece of cardboard. Yeah, me too. It, it, this is sort of what I was expecting, actually. Was I, had a, I had a tune going around my head before this. Did you really? Maybe you what just I read imagined. the grooves. <laughs> Some kind of musical soothsaying. Some sort of, um, I don't know, dated 1950s, kind of vaguely touristy Italian. It's nice, this one. I, I really like this record. It's jaunty. It takes me back somewhere, somewhere I've never been, I think. Do you th it has hints of early Eurovision. Yeah, well, I think so. There's a bit of that going. A bit of San Remo. Yeah. Well, as the international water skiers spin round and round forever. <laughs> That's it for this time on Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, Emma Mitchell and Marina Benjamin. Thank you both. Thank you, Tom. That was thank great. You. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me, at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book, Postcard from the Past, by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.